Morning Raleigh. It is Tuesday, February 12th, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. I'm DeAndre Jones. And I'm Jake Languan. We thank you for tuning in. Tonight, an exploration of something that has been at the forefront of national politics recently, the, the debate over guns and what role they should play in our society, including here on campus and in North Carolina. In addition, a controversy broke out on campus last week over a proposed dirty bingo event to be put on by the Union Activities Board. And Will spoke with the president of the Union Activities Board. Gene is also back with Weird Science and maybe even a movie, if we have time. But first, Jasmine Shepard has the weather for us. Jasmine? Thanks, Jake. And good evening, Wolfpack. Amazing weather is what we've experienced today with a high of 61 and an expected low of 45. But don't get too excited. We're looking at a 70% chance of rain throughout this evening, so make sure you are prepared for that. Tomorrow, we're looking at a high of 50 degrees and a low of 37. Expect another 70% chance of rain with possibilities of some thunderstorms to happen tomorrow. Thursday will be getting some relief as there is a 0% chance of rain tomorrow. Uh, I'm sorry, Thursday. Sunny skies are in the forecast along with a high of 58 degrees and a low of 37. Friday, sunny skies are expected again with 62 expected as the high and a low expected to be right around 38. Again, there will be a 0% chance of rain on that day as well. Saturday, it will be getting a little cold. Well, really a lot cold. 38 is anticipated high, which is not too similar to what we've been experiencing lately. The low is expected to drop down to 30 degrees as well. There's a possibility of some wintry weather occurring on Saturday, so make sure you all pay close attention to those weather reports. Sunday, a 10% chance of rain is in the forecast. We'll be experiencing a high right around 40 and a low of 26 degrees. Not a bad way to end off the weekend. And that's all for the weather, and have a great week. Man, it's hot, it's cold, you can never tell. Thanks for that, Jasmine. The Union Activities Board was thrust into the spotlight last week when it tried to put on an event promoting safe sexual practices. Dirty Bingo proved to be very controversial and was ultimately canceled. Our contributor, William Allen, spoke with Lauren Collier, the president of the Union Activities Board. And just as a warning, um, there is some talk of sex, so just keep that in mind. Good evening. Before we begin, I advise you that tonight's discussion concerns a topic unsuitable for young children. Please exercise discretion accordingly. Remarking on the current uproar over the use of NC State student fees to purchase sex toys, uh, one student dryly observed that this is the first time in recent memory that the Union Activities Board has achieved relevance. If relevance is measured by Facebook posts, then my guest tonight would just as soon return to happy obscurity. Lauren Collier is president of the UAB, the student-run board which quietly and efficiently sponsors Campus Cinema, Campus Movie Fest, the Red and White Charity Ball, and numerous other popular events on campus. She is a senior at NC State, a student of industry animal science, and a member of Alpha Zeta. Ms. Collier, welcome to Eye on the Triangle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, the event which has brought your normally low-profile organization so much unwanted attention is Dirty Bingo Night, uh, which attempts to provide humorous instruction in, quote, safe and healthy sex practices, unquote. It is plain from Ms. Collier's eloquent and forceful statement to the press last Tuesday that neither she nor the board ever intended the slightest provocation in planning this event. This self-assurance in using student fees for this event may itself be taken as a comment on the reigning norm of more or less total sexual license and the rarity with which that norm is challenged. Nevertheless, it has been challenged in this instance, and so I should like to begin by asking Ms. Collier to define, in your view, what responsibility the university has to its students in educating them about sex? I think that sex education is a responsibility of the university because th the point is whether you're having sex or whether you're abstinent or what it, whatever it may be, being educated um, as a college student, as an adult, is a necessity. Um, there are plenty of students who come from many diverse backgrounds and, and different forms of sex education, 
and sometimes students are too afraid to attend a seminar at the Student Health Center or something with health promotions or PAC peers. And so it is our job um, as, as the UAB, part of the university, to present that information to students who may be too scared to seek it out individually in a formal setting. Um, and I just think that we live in a culture of, of young people who are in relationships, healthy or not, um, and who just may not be aware because all they know is what their friends have told them. So would it be fair to, uh, if we could reduce that a little bit, could, does it come down to sort of a practical argument that, well, a crude way of putting it might be they're going to do it whether we like it or not, whatever individual opinions may be, so we should we should at least try to get them to have sex as safely as possible and, and, and as far as possible enjoyably. Is that a fair way of characterizing that position? I think it is fair, and I think it's also the other side of it for any students who are not having sex but who may be curious or who may um, need to find ways that they can continue their abstinence um, or whatever it may be, that, they, that they're educated on all the options out there and all the resources. Well, I, I don't know that uh, abstinence was quite included in the purview of Dirty Bingo Night, um, but well, we, won't, we won't taxonomize that particular program. Uh, I just want to, to go back to this idea of, of pragmatism. It's a dominant theme among sex educators that we should suspend moral judgments and focus on helping people to be safe and helping them to be healthy. I, I recognize the internal logic of this position. I mean, if, if two students are going to have anal sex, for instance, I would much prefer that they not injure themselves while doing it. But that kind of position, while narrowly logical, is, is hypocritical when you consider it in the context of the other positions that the university takes. So, for instance, we have no trouble institutionally making moral judgments about racism or about homophobia, Islamophobia. I mean, both inside and outside the classroom, faculty members, administrators, the entire university is constantly talking about the need to change people's mindset. The presumption of this, this constant stream of words is that someone out there who is racist or sexist or bigoted hopefully would hear it and maybe be persuaded to change their mind and change their habits. Why should we not be willing to try the same thing with sex? Why, why is it that all of a sudden when it comes to sex we suspend our moral judgment and we back up and we say, well, you can do whatever you want. We just, we just want to make sure you do it safely and efficiently. I, I don't know if I have the best answer to that question. That's a really good question, and, it, and it's a lot to think about. Um, I in no way represent the university or what their opinion is, but I think that overall the culture of North Carolina being a state in the South, being near the Bible Belt and conservative and all of that um, definitely plays a part into that hostility when it comes to talking well, about well, sex but, and but people just people, aren't comfortable with it. The, the conservative Bible Belters, people who, for instance— support abstinence-only uh, life before marriage. They're not uncomfortable talking about it. They're just, uh, they're, they're, that's their position. Their position is, is, is pretty simple. I mean, I, I don't think there's, there's any big secret about that. What is interesting and what is troubling about this instance is that the university is using pragmatism, realism, to justify non-interference, uh, not speaking out, not telling students that one thing might be right and one thing might be wrong because they're afraid of the consequences. And so they dismiss as unrealistic what might actually be what has been thought of for thousands of years as until recently a moral duty. That's troubling. The other, the other aspect of it that I wanted to ask you about was the extent to which students support this. So in your, in your press release, in your statements to the press, you made it very clear that uh, this is a small amount of money per student that's going toward this program. And indeed, the, the UAB is 
comparatively a very efficient student organization. They, they receive a small amount of student funding. I respectfully submit that that's not the point. The size of the program is not the point. Do, do you think this is a question of efficiency of, of spending, or do you think it's a, a different question? I think that the bottom line is um, the concerns that I've gotten from students are, are not are not that UAB wastes all of our money on every little thing. I think that the question, that the concern comes in where students don't agree with a particular topic of a program and with how we are implementing that program with their fees. Since then, we have made a lot of developments. We have a private um, external sponsor who will cover all of the cost of the student fees. And again, I just reiterate that you know, student fees, it's troubling. It's hard when you have an organization that's funded not solely through student fees, but through ticket sales, revenue, concessions, sure. all of that. Um, and students don't understand that it's a melting pot of things. So while... Well, while, well, well while, I think students, what students understand is that the... And, and what they might understand better than the UAB does from the sound of your remarks is that the university in hosting this event is implicitly endorsing certain forms of sexual activity, which many people find troubling or even repulsive. And while these, these students, for the most part, are not rushing out to condemn people, they're not going to raid people's bedrooms and, and tell them how to run their lives, they don't want their funds being used to do essentially the same thing, except indicate approval rather than disapproval. Well, I think the other thing that students have to understand is that our budget is very unique. So, for example, we have a sneak preview showing right after the event on Tuesday. We get money for that sneak preview. That money could have easily gone to cover the cost of the program separate from any funds from any student. So it's very it's very difficult for, for I think, students to understand how the money works when we get it. Because it's very easy for us to find an external sponsor say, hey, this money we got from this is going to cover this program, so your fees were never involved in it. Um, but the minute that, the, that that money goes into our program pot, it is then mixed aren't in you, with the students. Aren't you missing the point a little bit? Isn't the, isn't the, the point of the, the point that protesters are suggesting and the point that I would suggest is that, the, is that a, a major organization on campus is endorsing an activity that's morally reprehensible. And this is, this is an official student organization. It's yeah. not like a, a club that, that some students got together and formed. This is a sanctioned part of the university. Isn't that a cause for concern, regardless of how much it costs? Well, we're not tied to the university. We are independent. Um, and when I talked to the chancellor earlier today, you know, I told him I would make that very clear that the university is in no way responsible or tied to um, this event, especially with the addition of the private sponsor. I do think that as an organization, uh, we do program events for students based on the students that are programming them. The six programming committees, they're all, they're all students. They're all made up of students. And so I assume as the president that when events are planned, they are representative of the students who are planning them. And the best that I can say is that you know, if people think that the events are repulsive or, or tied to the university and the university shouldn't be, shouldn't be representing any of those events, that they give us that input at the very beginning instead of lashing out at the news and the legal people and all of that good stuff. I can join you wholeheartedly in, in decrying selective apathy. Yeah. But to, to circle back again, the point still remains whether or not UAB is officially part of this, the university's charter or how it's related to the university. The point is, is they do receive student fees. They are affiliated with the university and acting, if not in a, a legally official, still a quasi-official capacity. Otherwise, we wouldn't be compelled to, to fund them. So how going forward would you implement sex education events at NC State? 
Well, I think we've definitely learned from, um, I mean, we've done I Heart Female Orgasm for five years now. We did the J-Spot last year. So I think that we've definitely learned that there is a line where it comes, where sex education can cross the line with students and what they think is appropriately funded and not. Clearly, the events that we've had in the past regarding sex education were okay with students. If there were any that weren't okay, we didn't hear about it quite like like we have this time. So I think that we are able to take these concerns with what crosses the line um, for programs in the future, especially regarding sex education. And clearly the students, they have made that, that line very defined that you can't use or they don't want us to use student fees to pay for adult toys. Um, and that was just something that we hadn't done in the past. Um, in the past at programs, there have been businesses and student health that have given out those things, right. but they were donated, they were free, and student fees weren't used to pay with them. So I think that the students have clearly defined that line, that student fees can't pay for adult toys for other students to use. Um, if they're donated or if they're free, then they seem to be okay with them. Is that okay with you? Uh, just speaking as an individual right now and not representing the Union Activities Board, does it not trouble you at all that a, a major organization on campus is giving out sex toys and, and giving instruction in kinky sex and uh, basically not uh, discriminating at all between legitimate and, and illegitimate or even spiritually harmful forms of sexual activity? Well, personally, as a student, there's a lot of things that I don't agree with my money going toward or funding. Um, if I were looking at this from the outside, I even mentioned in, in my statement and, and on the news that I there are a few items that I personally find offensive and that I wouldn't have bought um, if I was in that position, if I was doing that. Um, but the rest of the things, I think, do they do encourage healthy sexual relationships. Masturbation is normal, um, and I think that allowing students to have those that information at hand is okay. Um, if I was a student not involved in this, I would probably attend the event. Um, but there are a lot of other events that my fees go to that I probably wouldn't attend. I would agree that masturbation is normal. I don't think that makes it right. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think just because someone has a libido naturally that the indulgence thereof is okay, is right. acceptable. And that depends on everyone's own moral and But it doesn't. That's, that's the thing. I, I mean, uh, a moral belief is either right or it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So we disagree on this particular issue. One of us is wrong. And this sort of goes back to the larger question of, of the message that is sent by the university, and not just NC State, but all the bodies of higher education. When they send a message about a certain topic, for instance, a homophobia, you know, that, that sends a very strong moral message. It says there are different positions on this issue. One of them is right and one of them is wrong. I would argue that that is an essential function of any civilizing institution. A university has to be able to, to say, okay, you know, this person is a racist. We don't have to forcibly suppress his point of view, but we do have an obligation as a civilizing group of people to speak out against it, to oppose it. I think you're right about the selective outrage, and that's frustrating and hard to understand. Um, why, why would students be okay with events like J-Spot and I Heart Female Orgasm and not okay with this event? I, I can't answer that. I think it's illogical. But I, I would venture to say that the only logical position, if, if the university wants to continue sex education going forward, if your organization wants to continue sex education going forward, the only logical position is either to say certain behaviors are, are right or okay, X, Y, and Z are morally justified, or that they're not. Otherwise, there's no basis for coming out and making a statement in the first place. There's no basis for merely being pragmatic. You see what I'm saying? Right. 
then that makes sense. And, I mean, as a student leader, I try to keep my personal opinions out of it. I try to remain neutral. I support the committees and everything that they plan. Um, and I think that a, a very difficult topic such as that and where the university should stand on it and, and what morality means and what sexual health and education means should probably follow with someone who is more capable of answering that question than me, um, someone probably with health promotions or a certified sex educator that has all the answers and is more educated about all what sex means, what sexuality means. I don't have all of those answers. So that that's a really good question. You make a very good point about that. Um, and I'm just a regular old person who has her own opinions and who's just trying to defend the organization and stick up for the students. That's a, a commendable statement of humility. But I, <laughs> and I think you're right when you say the responsibility ultimately should not be with a student organization. Uh, it is up to the university, whatever opinion the chancellor might hold on, on you know, the separation of powers or some such. It is up to the adults in the room to decide what is moral and immoral. And this this event and the backlash against it are proof that the university has completely abdicated that responsibility. Would you agree? I, I do agree. Well, that's leaves us in a, a dissatisfying place, but but an interesting one nonetheless. Uh, my guest has been Lauren Collier, president of the Union Activities Board at North Carolina State University. I'm William Allen, and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle. Miss Collier, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you. Good night. And I'd just like to take this moment to remind everyone that any and all opinions you hear on this uh, station do not reflect the views of the station, just the opinions of those that we have on the show. So we're going to go ahead and cut to a quick break. Uh, stick around. we got more on the way. And welcome back to Iron the Triangle. Gun control is an issue that has been very prominent in the public sphere, especially since the tragic Sandy Hook shooting. In light of that, uh, different organizations have come forward with ideas on what, if anything, should be done in light of the challenges facing our nation. DeAndre Jones recently spoke with Paul Vallone, president of Grassroots North Carolina, a pro-Second Amendment organization. Shootings in restaurants, movie theaters, schools, or any place for that matter, are definitely a big problem in the United States today. And a big subject for debate is, do we fight fire with fire? Do we allow looser gun policies to combat gun violence, or should we tighten them? Here to talk with me about that today is Paul Vallone from Grassroots North Carolina. So can we start off with uh, getting your name and title, please? Paul Vallone, and I am the president of Grassroots North Carolina. Firstly, I thank you, Paul, for uh, lending me some of your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. What exactly is Grassroots North Carolina? You know, what is your organization's purpose? Well, Grassroots North Carolina is exactly what the name implies. We are an all-volunteer organization of people from a wide variety of walks of life, all of whom share a common concern about the erosion of our constitutionally guaranteed freedoms. Uh, GRNC was founded in 1994. We were involved in passing the original concealed handgun law. Um, we've been looking for enhancements to that law ever since. Uh, one of which was we wrote and passed the Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground laws that became effective in uh, 2011. We're looking for a number of improvements to the concealed handgun law this year uh, since we've basically had 18 years of a highly successful uh, experience with the concealed handgun law. Um, and before we get uh, specifically into gun control, what are some of the other topics that your organization has uh, firm stances about? Well, suffice to say that we are a Bill of Rights organization. Right. Although we do, most of our projects are related to the right to keep and bear arms, we've taken positions on 
anti-terrorism legislation, on DNA collection, and essentially on things which tend to encroach on individual freedoms. On the subject of gun control, uh, where exactly does your organization stand? Where do we stand on gun control? Well, obviously, what we, we believe shall not be infringed, okay, and the Second Amendment means precisely what it says. And so, consequently, uh, gun control proposals, particularly those that are being, uh, I guess, foisted on us at a federal level right now, are completely unacceptable to our membership. Um, and we have, as we announced very clearly in our rally of, uh, of nearly 1,000 people at the General Assembly last week, um, we will not compromise on these issues. And what are the major reasons behind this stance? I know the encroachment of rights is definitely a big one for you guys. Well, first off, effective public policy should be based on facts, okay? And what we see right now is we see research that, and, fa- and statistics that are being thrust at us by gun control organizations by the Obama administration, which frankly are false. Um, the fact is the guns that they are targeting for banning, the semi-automatic firearms, are rarely used in crimes. In fact, um, if you look at the FBI Uniform Crime Reports and the DOJ statistics, what you find is that rifles of any type are used in less than 1.3% of gun crimes, and only a subsection of that is, are even the semi-automatic firearms that they're targeting for the ban. Do you see a need at all for gun control reform in the United States? Oh, yes, I see a need for gun law reform. We could start by um, repealing the, gu- the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act passed in 1996. And the reason we should repeal it was because the rate of violent victimization in schools averaged about 4.3 victims per year before passage of that law. And in 1996, after it was passed, the uh, rate of violent victimization increased by nearly fivefold to 23 victims per year. Um, what we've done with the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act, which of course bans guns within 1,000 feet of a school, is we've created areas which attract violent sociopaths. And that's because they're basically free zones where people can go in and do whatever harm they want without any sort of worry about repercussions. Which is ex- exactly right. And, of course, that is the, the stance of students for concealed carry on campus. Uh, we've had discussions with, with, with respect to the campus carry bill we're interested in, in uh, passing this year. Essentially, the fact is, you know, whether they're violent criminals or sociopaths, they tend to avoid areas where they encounter armed victims. So, and they tend to displace to areas where they know the victims will not be armed. What are some of the main arguments that, uh, that you get um, in opposition to your stance, and how do you retort to those arguments? We still see the argument that, uh, from the uh, gun control advocates that, uh, that don't seem to understand that two Supreme Court decisions have affirmed the fact that the Second Amendment reinforces an individual right to keep and bear arms. Those Supreme Court decisions, of course, were D.C. versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago. And so we still see references to, well, you don't need an AR-15 to go hunting. Well, yeah, maybe that's true, and maybe it's not, because sometimes they are used for hunting. But the fact is the Second Amendment has absolutely nothing to do with hunting. We also see, you know, arguments that, um, that for example, limiting magazine capacities might decrease the, uh, the ability of some of these sociopaths to perpetrate their crimes. But the reality is that Cho Sung Wee and uh, most of the other killers have carried multiple firearms in multiple magazines. So magazine capacity is really irrelevant. President Obama recently released a few executive orders on gun control. Um, Do you have any specific problems with these executive orders? Beyond beyond the fact that they're a violation of Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, and he's trying to legislate from the executive, um, which probably should be an impeachable offense, yeah, we have a whole bunch of problems with them. Now, I will admit that 
his threat to uh, to actually institute a ban on semi-automatic firearms by an executive order he hasn't done yet, um, and I, I would regard that as an impeachable offense. But even the executive orders that, that supposedly are relatively mild are, in fact, one of them, for example, says he's going to take the politics out of research by refunding the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control and their gun injury project. Well, the reason that Congress defunded that project back in the 1990s was because you had gun ban advocates, people like Arthur Kellerman and Stephen Terrett and a variety of others, who were disguising anti-gun advocacy as research. And um, eventually Congress defunded the project because they were doing that. So um, the executive orders we've seen, most of them are relatively benign, but if they get any worse than that, then we're going to have a serious issue with it. And uh, recently, Grassroots North Carolina hosted a rally in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, what was the purpose of this rally, and do you think that you succeeded in fulfilling the purpose? Well, the, ra- the rally was uh, had a twofold uh, objective, actually. At a state level, it was intended to deliver a message to legislators that we want, and gun owners want, and the, the North people of North Carolina want, an expansion of our highly successful concealed handgun law. Concealed handgun permit holders have spent 18 years proving themselves sane, sober, and law-abiding. Now it's time to, to expand that law, and by the way, that's demonstrated by an absolutely infinitesimal rate of permit revocations. We've had about 400,000 permits that have been approved since uh, the law, the inception of the law in 1995, and of those, something on the order of three-tenths of a single percent have been revoked for any reason, and the vast majority of those have nothing to do with guns. So now it's time to expand concealed carry into educational properties, into restaurants, and a number of other areas. The other objective we had uh, for the rally was to deliver a message to federal lawmakers that when it comes to the proposals that have been coming down the pipe, uh, you know, in terms of semi-auto bans, magazine bans, so-called universal background checks, which is really gun registration, and a variety of other things, absolutely nothing about these proposals is acceptable, and we will not compromise. And given that um, the chants of the crowd were literally echoing off the walls of the and the windows of the legislators' offices while they were in those offices, and then got carried by the media nationwide, yeah, I'd say it was highly successful. If students and people in general were allowed to um, concealed carry guns onto educational and, and restaurant areas, do you think that these properties would be safer? Well, that, of course, is exactly the point. Uh, John Lott and William Landis did research on multiple victim public homicides and determined that the only effective policy for reducing those homicides was the adoption of concealed handgun laws. And, in fact, John Lott went on to point out just a couple of weeks ago in National Review Online, of the multiple victim uh, public shootings that have taken place in the United States since 1950, and that's killing of four or more people in a single incident, okay, all but one of those took place in, in areas where firearms were prohibited. And so, consequently, what we're looking to do is, and I mean, you know, this is not Wild West shootouts on campuses or in restaurants. Uh, that's always been predicted by our opposition and has never come to pass in any of the times we've ever expanded concealed carry. What we're looking to do is deter violent criminals from these areas where you know, so that because they know that they may encounter armed victims there. Okay. And have concealed carry laws been expanded into these areas? Do you think that incidents such as Sandy Hook and uh, Virginia Tech shootings would have ended differently? I think, frankly, they, they probably never would have started, because the fact is, you get these violent sociopaths who want to become famous, and if they're if they're going to die and fail, they're going to avoid these areas and they're going to displace onto other areas. 
So the question isn't just whether whether they would have ended differently, although I very I, I do believe they would have ended differently. We've seen, uh, for example, another theater shooting in Texas not long ago in which uh, um, uh, an armed individual was able to stop the perpetrator, but of course that never makes news. Uh, so yeah, they would have ended differently, but the point here is they probably never would have started. Did the incident at Sandy Hook strengthen your uh, your organization's views about these gun control policies? We've regarded it that... Uh, the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act and the prohibition of firearms in these areas attracts violent predators. So um, it's just another, another data point in, uh, in a strong trend which has occurred since 1996. Other than that, um, there's nothing else I got for you. And once again, I want to thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And for Eye on the Triangle, this has been DeAndre Jones. Recently, Andrew spoke with with J- Javana Hunter, a columnist for the Nubian Message, who has written on why we need tighter gun, tr- gun control. Here is Andrew. My name is Javana Hunter. I'm a junior in Education General Studies with a concentration in Communications. Um, I wrote the article because one of my friends who actually works for the Nubian Message just asked me, hey, can you write an editorial about gun control since you're a military brat? And I said, of course, like, that's perfect. Um... You know, I just think with all of the shootings that have happened, gun control is absolutely necessary in the United States. Um, my favorite piece that President Obama presented was um, the background check before you purchase a machine gun or any, you know, um, semi-automated or assault rifle. Personally, I feel that assault rifles are unnecessary outside of the military because I don't think anyone should really have that type of weapon on them. Most people's defense is that they're protecting their house and their assets, but I feel like a small handgun or a small shotgun, if you feel you absolutely need it, is all that's necessary. Can you tell us about what is it, four proposals that President Obama put yes. forward? He, um, he wants to ban the sale of assault rifles and their ammunition. He wants to propose um, mental health and background checks. And he also wants to implement um, armed um, officers in schools as well. And I'm not sure the fourth part right now, but the other three, <laughs> those are the three that I really felt the most passionate about. So the first two I know were um, they were what were on the books for the 1994 assault weapons ban, right? Yes. That's pretty much the same thing. It expired after 10 years in 2004, and uh, since then there have been a lot of bills in Congress to renew it, but it's never happened. So, do you think that that bill? before like did its job well that we should have something like that again or maybe it should be even more reaching absolutely because if you notice all of the mass shootings basically virginia tech aurora they all happened after 2004 so i feel like obviously you know that that sends a story and tells a message the third proposal and that was armed guards or uh, police officers in schools that was actually something that the NRA proposed yes. right after the um, the shooting in Connecticut. And I remember that received like a lot of disdain when it was first heard. Like people couldn't believe that they were saying that that guns in school are what would solve that. But right. I guess President Obama is in support of that. Do you see that as an attempt at appeasement towards the people who who first proposed that? Or do you see that as like a legitimate proposal coming from him? Um, I see it as both. 
personally, I think President Barack Obama, he's very level-headed, and he uses a lot of rationale to make decisions. And um, also, with the NRA coming down on him so hard about his proposals, I feel like it may have been a bit of appeasement, but I feel like he also considered the other side of the situation as well. I think to some extent, like I said, you know, with um, the armed officers, I feel like it kind of serves as a deterrent. But for people to say, you know, there should be no gun bans, like you can't, you can't solve the problem with what's causing the problem in all situations. For me personally, like at a school, I feel like that's totally acceptable. Um, for the students who want to carry guns on campus, I personally don't see that because our police force is actually very efficient. I know they ran um, a testing as if there was a shooter on campus, and I think they got the shooter down within like two minutes of the warning going out. So despite what people may believe, they're actually very efficient. I feel like the need for a gun to protect yourself on campus is really unnecessary, but to each their own. What is the end level for gun control? If we ban assault weapons, semi-automatic weapons that uh, can hold a large magazine. That was the fourth proposal. Mm -hmm. It was uh, it was like I think more than 60 rounds, I believe. Yeah, I think it was like 10 or something in like handguns or something. Mm -hmm. I, I It was something like that anyway. And it, I think it went from like 12 to 10. But would that solve the issue if we just do what he says? Or do you think that later on we'll be like, well, we need to address handguns. Lots of European countries, Britain is the prime mm -hmm. example. Handguns are not allowed. Right. Cops don't carry them. Civilians don't carry them. Yeah, shotguns and rifles are allowed for hunting, but handguns aren't right. allowed at all. So. Um. Personally, I don't think it'll be the end, specifically for the reason of there are people who feel so passionately about both sides of the argument. I think um, as far as guns go, it'll probably it'll probably die down for a little bit. But, I mean, eventually people are going to find ways to get the assault rifles if they really want them. I think, you know, his plan just serves as a deterrent, but they're also very determined people. So I feel like it'll solve it for a minute, but it's definitely not going to be over. Well, Jolotta, thank you so much for, for coming and talking about No problem. <laughs> Interesting opinions. Um, so if everybody seems to have an opinion, what does the Wolfpack think? Here's Grant. With the recent discussion on gun laws in our country, I decided to go around campus asking students how they would feel about their peers being able to have their firearms on campus. Here's some of what they said. I feel, I probably feel less safe. I don't know, I, I don't really feel like anyone outside campus is going to come shoot me. So if you add more guns to campus, I don't, I don't really feel safe. But I think it's, I think it's all right if they want to have them at their like houses or something, but not, not, yeah, not really carrying the class. I feel like that could escalate too much. What's your opinion about guns on campus? Do you feel safer or less safe if students are allowed to have them? I would definitely feel less safe because you never know if there's going to be, like, shootings around or anything like that. Like, shootings that can happen on campus. Like, people can pull guns out. And, like, if they're licensed to have them, they can have them, like, at their apartment or, like, their house, but, like, not on campus. Yeah, I don't really feel really unsafe walking around when yeah. people have guns in their pockets. Like, security could have them, but, like, not, like, just students. I don't know. I guess I don't really think it's necessary. You could carry pepper spray or bear spray, which is, like, really intense pepper spray. So... <laughs> No, I don't think they need them. <laughs> I think I'd feel less safe. I don't really like guns, but I'd prefer if there were less guns on campus. One young man posed the interesting argument that our bodies can be used as deadly weapons also. Well, personally, uh, since I'm about to go to the gym and swell up my guns on campus, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I'll feel pretty safe carrying around my own guns, but I don't want to. I am in, Jake, I got no guns. I'm in favor of concealed carry on campus, actually. Why? 
I, I feel like if there are people who have the responsibility to own guns and know about them, that there's less likely of a chance of their, something drastically bad happening because they have to go through a strict process in order to get the guns. Regardless of your opinion, some statements are hard to argue with. Have you seen all them crazy people lately? For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Grant Buckner, 88.1 WKNC. Well, guys, uh, we've heard, you know, a fair amount of opinions about this, but it's time to, you know, to discuss this. Is fighting fire, fire, fire with fire a good idea? Um, and what I mean by that is do looser concealed and carry policies lead to safer places in general? I think you'd have to look at statistics um, where places have looser concealed, you know, weapons laws. I know, I believe it was Kentucky last year, the year before passed a law, you can have um, – Concealed weapons in bars and places like that. I mean, are places like that safer or, or less safe than before? Well, um, uh, Paul Valone, the guy that I interviewed, uh, he mentioned an uh, interesting statistic, which was that four uh, out of three out of the four major shootings that have happened in the last couple of years, um, three of them have been in places where concealed and carry weapons have not been allowed. So um, it seems. I mean, I mean, and this would make sense that. Gunmen like to prey on people that are in places that they know will, that they're going to face uh, a limited amount of opposition. I mean, I don't know how much credence I give that because if someone is going to go out and do such a heinous act, I think they're going to do it anyway. And they're not going to take very much consideration into who might be armed or who not. And I think a perfect example happening right now is is the the fugitive over in California taking on the LAPD. Right. I think that's a perfect example of when a, a person is not really taking into consideration how much uh, their adversaries might be armed. So I think that's something to consider. Yeah, and um, most of these cases, these mass shootings, they end in the suicide of the shooter. So I don't think that they particularly think, well, am I going to be able to get out of this? Is someone else going to have a gun there? I think, I mean, these are madmen. Now, right. if, if you're talking about, like, petty crime, I assume he's talking more about petty crime, correct? Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I could see that. I could see how people, you know, someone is just wanting to, you know, rob you of your wallet. If there's a ch- better chance that you have a concealed weapon on you, I could certainly see that that would might be a deterrent. Um, unfortunately, I don't know any statistics speaking to in either direction. So right. Um, and also, uh, there was a shooting in a movie theater this past summer, in which uh, a female cop uh, was armed at the moment and uh, was able to take down the shooter before he could do. Uh, more damage than he already had done, so that is another. That's also another argument that's that's been widely discussed. Is that if I mean, if people were allowed to have weapons in these places, even if they can't, even if it's not going to deter the shooter, would they be able to stop the shooter faster than say waiting for police to come and respond? Well, she was a member of law enforcement, like you said. Yes, she was. So she had training. She knew how to use a weapon. Yes. She knew, um, you know, not everybody knows how to use or how to use or utilize a weapon as as effectively as as policemen right. um police personnel do so i think you know but, but i would we'd, we'd like to think that someone with a concealed and carry uh license does know how to use a weapon effectively i certainly hope so is there i mean how difficult is it to obtain a concealed and carry license you um, know? i mean it's definitely a process but i, I if, as far as my knowledge i don't think they test your your ability to shoot with it i mean I, I think i think probably my biggest issue with that is if you're going to allow concealed and carry i think there should be a um I think it should be more uh, thorough in who gets a weapon and who doesn't and who gets a license and who doesn't. You know, I see nothing wrong with it as long as they're just, you know, you make sure that only the people that 
can handle it, get get it. Right. Um, a big topic lately has been has been um, the limit the, the limiting of magazine sizes to numbers like ten or less or seven or less. Um, do you guys think that ultimately it makes a difference um, to have limited magazine sizes? Absolutely, because um, for all these proposals, people they they say assault weapons and they get those confused with automatic weapons. Right. Automatic weapons are already illegal. They've been illegal since the 70s. Automatic weapons are the ones where you pull down the trigger and it keeps shooting until it runs out of bullets. Right. Uh, semi-automatic weapons or assault weapons, which they call them now, are ones where you can keep pulling the trigger until it runs out of bullets and you don't need to reload until that happens. So if you limit you know, the magazine size, you need to reload sooner and you can you can kill less people. That's the... That's the logic behind it. I think it's sound logic. I think that that will that will help prevent uh, situations like this in the future. Um, do you think that the time that it takes, even if you were to have a another clip already prepared and ready, you know, ready to be ready to be loaded, uh, do you think that the time that it takes to pull the empty clip out and load in a new clip is enough to make a difference? Um, I think especially if you're in a like if the police are there, if there is a threat to the shooter, then I think definitely um, having a limit to the magazine size will be at their disadvantage. And I don't think having another gun available or another magazine available for quick reloading is really an option in situations like that. So should Americans have the right to own and bear any kind of semi-automatic weapon? I I don't think so. No. Um, I I mean I think that there's definitely limitations that should be that should be uh that should be enforced. Mm-hmm. Um I think that you know you walk a thin line when you're limiting anything. Um, I mean it's a constitutional right and this exactly. is this is in the it's a I fundamental mean, right but, of every American. Um, but even that it's an unfair argument because people say well you know the people's right to bear to hold and bear arms will not be infringed. Well that's part of it but before that it says a well regulated militia. I think this is part of regulating it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so regulation, I mean, like, just like Andrew said, is part of the is part of the Constitution. And I think that uh, c- certain semi-automatic weapons, um, like a big one is uh, the AR-15, which is it's a it's an assault rifle. Um, you don't you wouldn't typically use it for hunting, uh, you know, although in, um, just like Paul Vallone said, it has I mean, it can be used for hunting if if the hunter really wants to use it. Um, but but typically it would be used to defend oneself and it's one of those one of those weapons that you can just keep pulling the trigger and it's not going to stop shooting until it runs out of bullets and i feel like that you know that high power of a weapon is strictly only used for killing um killing uh people in in numbers i mean i think i think it's i'm I'm pretty uncomfortable with banning weapons outright i mean i think people do have a right to their weapons and i think you know, a lot of people, what do you need them for? Well, for sport. I mean, you don't use them for hunting. You don't use them for this. But people go to the driving range, not the driving range, the shooting range, and these are things that they enjoy. So I don't think, you know, you should ban it completely. I think people have a right to that. I think now I, I do believe that it should be more thorough, again, the process for obtaining weapons like this. I think that people need to understand that, you know, in order to get these, there should be some kind of process. And right. it should be more it should be better enforced i think the system in place right now is not equipped to handle you know process you know claims like that so right here's the way i see it if you look at it like you know from from a perspective of rights like classical liberalism if you have a right to bear arms i think the right to safety 
far supersedes that. And so maybe we should be able to live in a society where you can carry guns. But I think even more so, we should be able to live in a society where you don't have to. And if you, you know, if, if you have to carry a gun because it's so dangerous because everyone else has guns, then that's a failure of the state. And so I think foremost, we should say, we should look to make it safer before we go and we try to expand. I mean, this is the only problem where I think people see an issue and they think, well, maybe if we just allow more of these issues to occur with more frequency, eventually it'll take care of itself and there'll just be enough guns that we don't have any more shootings. Well, I mean, that's not going to happen. That's right. And uh, a quick point is that uh, what we just heard from the soundboys, it seemed that uh, a lot of the students here on campus uh, w- when proposed to the thought of should we allow people you know, conceal and carry guns on our campus, so student, uh, students specifically, a lot of people seem really, really opposed to it and even threatened by it. Um, and I think that that's almost that's almost a, a fallacy of the of the other society that we live in today because um, a statistic that Paul gave in, in the interview was that um, of the four hundred thousand uh, concealed and carry licenses that have been issued since the law was passed, um, less than point three percent of those have been revoked, and even and even less have been uh, for uh, for reasons related to the actual gun of itself. So I think that um, you know it's it's pretty safe to say that you know time has tested the concealed and carry policy and that people are generally responsible with their weapons Mm -hmm. i think i think honestly i think one of the biggest things that we can do is insurance and let me explain what i mean if you know when you buy a car you're required to have insurance because if something happens you know something happens and you have to pay for it you obviously you want to be insured right i don't see any i don't i see no reason why that shouldn't also be the case with weapons because weapons obviously have the capability to do copious amounts of damage. So I think if you, you know, if, if people are insured, you're going to do everything you can to make sure that gun is not stolen or, you know, it falls into the wrong hands. And I think that would go a long way toward ensuring that guns remain in the hands of people that are responsible. Right. So any final thoughts? Um, I think that uh, in, I mean, I guess in conclusion that I think that limitations and regulations definitely are necessary, but, um, I think that uh, we should definitely start becoming a little bit more open to maybe thinking about ways to keep our population safer because obviously, you know, with the incident that's going on right now in, in California and Sandy Hook, you know, that we're, people are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And is it a problem that we as a population should address or that, or is it a problem of the state like Andrew said? Yeah, is it a problem that's um, something to consider? If you have any thoughts and opinions on it, um, you can go to our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Um, so for now, we're just going to go ahead and go to uh, Grant Buckner for the latest in the camp- campus happenings. Happy almost Valentine's Day, Wolfpack. To celebrate, bring that special someone to Witherspoon Student Theater's International Romantic Movie Festival on Wednesday, February 13th. First, check out the 2001 film Amelie in Witherspoon Student Theater at 7 p.m. Admission is free of charge. Continuing with our Valentine's-themed movies, check out the film Namaste London at 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Admission is also free of charge. Finally, check out the sneak peek of the new film Safe Haven at Witherspoon Student Theater Wednesday night at 10. Tickets are free for students and are available at the NC State Bookstore in the Computer Connections Department. Each ticket is good for one admission, limit four per person. If love stories aren't your thing, check out University Theaters and Inspector Calls starting Wednesday at 7.30. Tickets are $5 for NC State students. Go online for more showtimes. 
On Thursday, check out the Fire Pink Trio at 7 p.m. This dynamic and poetic trio combines three sensual instruments, harp, flute, and viola. Go online for details. Bond, James Bond, is coming to Witherspoon on Thursday starting at 7, followed by the free movie Moulin Rouge at 10 p.m. And on Saturday, February 16th, bring your friends and family members and join Mr. and Mrs. Wolf, the NC State cheerleaders, and the community as the Walk for K fundraiser begins on Hillsborough Street at 1 p.m. Go online for more details. For more information on these events and more, visit ncsu.edu forward slash calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Grant Buckner, 88.1 WKNC. just about wraps up all we got for you guys this week a big thanks to Gene Jernoff, Jasmine Shepard Andrew Eichen, Will Allen and Grant Buckner for their contributions from all of us here at Eye on the Triangle we thank you for tuning in we'd also like to thank Lauren Collier, Paul Vallone and uh, Javada Hunter for taking time out of their busy schedules to speak with us this week and as always if you heard anything you liked, you hated or anything that made you think, let us know on our Facebook page and you can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT also be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org until next week, Good night.